Hi, this is your host, Pete Bloom. Welcome to American Heroes Network. Our core mission is serving the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. You will hear true stories from those that have served, learn about veteran organizations and resources, and gain hope for your future knowing American Heroes Network, your community, and other veterans are here and at the ready to serve and help you and your family. We will talk about the hard topics like PTSD and TBI. You will also hear military history, inspirational stories, learn about networking with the community, and more. So come join us and be part of our family. Today's guest is a Marine Corps veteran who served in Vietnam. Six weeks into his service, he was wounded by a 500-pound bomb that exploded under his truck. He's also been Disabled Veteran of the Year in 1997, and he's also a previous National Commander of DAV, which is Disabled American Veterans. I would like to welcome Bobby Barrera. Bobby, thank thank you for serving, and how are you doing today? I am doing very well. Thank you so much. I look forward to speaking to some of my fellow comrades. Bobby, one of the reasons that I'm really so grateful for having you on today is that what you've been through is really far greater than most of us have ever had to deal with, and you survived. So I'm grateful for that and really for how you now take that suffering and that experience, and you've been using it for 40-plus years to help other veterans survive as well. And I know you do everything you can to teach others that there's hope, no matter how dark the moment might seem. It's something that my military career definitely changed my whole life. People ask me if I was okay with what happened to me. And obviously the answer is no, that because I couldn't change anything. I just decided to move forward with my life. When I was in Vietnam, I was basically living my dream. It's something that I wanted to do since I was a kid. My dad was a World War II veteran. Army Infantry. He served in Italy. I saw some of the pictures that he brought back from his tour there and heard some of the stories. And I guess, Pete, from that point on, that was what I wanted to do when I graduated from school. I wanted to go into the military. The Vietnam War was constantly on the news. And also that what was going on in our country, all the protests against the war, Ironically, I had a totally different view of what was going on. I wanted to go serve. I wanted to go to Vietnam. In fact, when I enlisted in the Marine Corps, I enlisted for a a two-year tour. And people didn't realize that, a lot of people didn't realize that two-year tour existed. That two-year tour was for those who really wanted to go to Vietnam because one of the conditions of signing up for a two-year tour was that you had to go serve one tour in Vietnam. And for me, that was exactly what I wanted to do. From high school, dad talked me out of going into the military right out of high school. He said, you're the fourth kid who graduated from high school and none of them have gone to college. So I did it north for dad. That, that's not what I wanted to do. After two years of partying and drinking a lot of his money, I decided this is not what I want. So I enlisted. Bobby, let me ask you, I want to start at the beginning, and that is what you started talking about. And I think that's awesome that you really always wanted to be a Marine and, and you did make that come true. But when you enlisted and when you went through training, what actually was your MOS? What was you trained to do in the Marine Corps? I was an infantry. I was an 0311, a grunt, a ground pounder. We completed all the training. I went to boot camp in San Diego. 
from there to Camp Pendleton for infantry training and advanced infantry training since they knew that I was going to Vietnam. So that's what I did. You mentioned earlier, Pete, that I had just been in country for six weeks before I got injured. And it's very true that I hadn't seen a whole bunch of what was going on. In fact, the day before we hit that landmine, that 500-pound bomb that you mentioned, we had been out on the field for about eight or ten days, came back, and they told us, uh, y'all will be in, in camp for two or three days before y'all go out again. Well, intelligence had planned a mission. A Vietnamese had turned himself in, and he was going to direct us to where there was a, a huge storage of rice, which is the primary food of the Vietnamese people. So it was a big effort on our part. We went on the convoy of five tracks, and uh, I was on track one initially, and then someone came and told me, some sergeant came and said, hey, you go to track three, which I was kind of relieved. Track three being in the middle of the five was probably the safest place. Only this was not true this time, because riding along on track three with me and six other Marines was Gunnery Sergeant Carlos Hathcock. Hathcock at the time was a Marine Corps top sniper. He had 93 confirmed kills to his credit. And as a result of that, he had a huge bounty on his head. The North Vietnamese had offered a bounty who could ever put him out of commission. So he was riding with us. Hathcock wore a white feather in his jungle cap. Anytime he made a kill, that was his calling card. So they would knew who had made that kill. Because of that, he was easily spotted from anyone who had been tracking the movement of the convoy, knew where Carlos hat was on. So that's the one that they selected. As we left the main highway, we were getting ready to cross the rice paddy. And the track one and the convoy went over the landmine. Nothing. Track two, following along the same tracks that the previous one, went over the landmine, nothing happened. Track three went over the landmine, and as we were over the landmine, the 500-pound bomb was command detonated. It was remote control, and they set it off, and they got Carlos Hapcock along with seven other of us. So that's how my military career came to an end. Very short. Like I said, I was there six weeks. The rest of my military career, the next year and a few months, I spent in the hospital at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. So, Bobby, you were on there and you said there were eight Marines total and you survived, but there were other Marines there too. Did some of them survive as well? We all survived that day, obviously with severe burns and different injuries. We were shipped from there. A medevac chopper picked us up right there on the field and took the eight of us to the USS Repose, which was a Navy hospital ship. It was anchored in Da Nang Harbor. The moment we got to the Repose, they started taking care of us. At all this time, we were still walking. When they picked us up on the field, we all eight of us walked into the chopper. When we landed in the Repose, we walked off the chopper onto waiting stretchers. All of us had severe burns. One of the things that they did for us when we were there is the general officer came and pinned the turtle heart on our pillows. They didn't think that all of us would survive, but we did. We cheated death. We all survived with faith, intervention, I don't know, excellent doctors. 
we survived only to start another struggle, which I always say that overcoming the physical part from the heat was the easy part. And that's surprising. You would think that that would be the major part of it, but people don't realize that the long-term effects of something like that. Could you just tell us what happened to you? Yes, when they stabilized us so we can make the long flight from Vietnam, we went to uh, Japan. We were in Japan for three days, and then they flew us into Fort Sam Houston, the Army post here in San Antonio. All of us were intact. I had my hand. I had my arm. All I had was obviously severe burn scars. But when I was in the hospital, myself and another of the Marines, uh, Captain Highland, developed an infection. They call it phycomycosis. And phycomycosis is like a, a very, very fast gangrene. And it eats the flesh and nonstop. Back then, there was no medication. And I hear that there still is no cure for it. The only way they can stop it is through amputations. The ironic part is that when I was in the hospital here at Fort Sam, my family saw some dark spots on the palm of my right hand. But they thought that it was burn scars where the flesh had been charred. Well, one of the doctors noticed it and said, no, we need to do something. And they did a biopsy right away and found out that it was phycomycosis. So they took me into surgery, and I'll never forget the doctor, the surgeon who came up to me, and he said, Bobby, we're going to take you into surgery. We're going to take your fingers. And I have always said that I couldn't leave it as an amputee, but I thought two fingers, and eh, that's not too bad. So they wheeled me into surgery. While I was in surgery, they amputated three of my fingers, and then they did a biopsy further on my palm and they discovered it had gone into the palm, so they amputated the wrist. When I got back from surgery, I was on the ward, and the same doctor, almost with tears in his eyes, said, I'm sorry, we had to take your whole hand. And in spite of how difficult it sounds, I'll talk about one of the coping mechanisms that I developed is having a sense of humor. And I clearly, to this day, Pete, remember telling you goddamn army doctors don't even know how to count. You told me two fingers and now look. (laughs) He was able to smile somewhat, but it was a difficult task that he had, not only to do it, but to come and tell me what had happened. So that happened. Six days later, they noticed that I had it on my left arm and they had it on my hand. This time they knew what it was, so they amputated the hand right away. And they kept me under anesthesia, and they did a biopsy further up on my forearm, and that fungus had already traveled that far. So they were going to amputate the elbow, but they said, no, if it's in there already, we won't be able to stop it. So what they did is removed my arm from the shoulder, and they ran biopsies, and it had not gotten into my chest cavity because... If that had happened, then obviously I would have died because there's nothing else that they could amputate. Interesting enough, a few days later, they noticed a spot on my upper lip, the same phycomycosis, the same fungus. And this time they immediately amputated my whole upper lip to the bottom of my nose, to the sides of my mouth. So all my gums were exposed. The fear that they had then was that if it entered my sinus cavity again, I would be gone, that there's nothing that they could do. My dad has since passed, but my dad told me that the doctors came and Mm -hmm. said that they had done everything possible to save me. And this is what my dad said. He said, 
The doctor then said, the only thing that can save him now is God. It's in God's hand. And I truly believe that God does perform miracles and he was there with you that day to make sure that you did survive so that you could continue to help others. The thing about all that is, is that somewhere during that time, you were basically angry and your father came to visit you. And what did you ask your father? At that point, I had already lost all my amputations, the arm, the hand, the lips, my ears, everything. And I was in lots of pain. I was in intensive care there at the burn unit. And dad walked in, and at that point, I had decided that I didn't want to live. I didn't want to put up with the pain. I didn't want to live my life as an amputee without being able to do anything for myself. Dad walked in. Dad was, at that point, he was the assistant chief of police in my hometown of Del Rio. And because of that, he always carried a, a little small five-shot snub-nose thirty-eight revolver, whether he was on duty or off duty. So when he walked in, I said, Dad, do you have the gun with you? And he said, yeah, why? And then I told him, I want to take my life. I want you to shoot me. I don't want to go on. But he didn't do it, did he? No. Uh, I'm glad he didn't do it. Uh, that's a heck of a thing to ask a father. But at that point, that darkest moment in my life, he stood down at that side for about two hours, Pete. We talked, we laughed, we cried. And until he was sure that that thought had left my mind, then he leave to let some of the other family come in and visit with me. So, and I'm here talking to you. Thank God. Yeah. And the thing is there, Bobby, you know, I don't think that, you know, any parent would ever want to even consider doing something like that to a child. So again, God put the right person there with you because no matter what you were thinking, you know, he was just wanting to be there with you to help you get through it. And as you said, here you are today. I know that you were talking about the physical more or less being easier than the mental struggles right. and having to live as an amputee. So I know it seems like there was a period of time when, you know, you really struggled with this and you kind of walked around feeling hopeless and lost. Is that correct? That is very correct. When I was retired from the military sometime in 70, at the end of 1970, I was medically retired. And I still had lots of surgeries to go through. But I was lost. I had no direction. I had no dreams to reach for, no hope in my life. I always talk about when I was medically retired, my medical board, the surgeon who wrote the medical report for my retirement said, I had repugnant scarring. And that thought kept repugnant scarring. What a hell of a way to start the rest of your life. And then when I was actually retired, my retirement orders from the Marine Corps said that I was unfit for duty. So those two thoughts kept going through my mind again and again, day in, day out, repugnant, scarring, unfit for duty. So I really had no hope. I didn't. For the next three years, I bummed around the house. Uh, luckily, I had lots of money from my disability, but unfortunately, I used that money for drinking. I turned to alcohol, didn't accomplish much. I tried to go back to school. I re-enrolled in school. I failed miserably. My parents put up with me. I don't know why they put up with me because the love of a parent. But they put up with me and just basically held on to me as much as they could, trying to do as much as they could. At that point, my whole life changed when I met my wife-to-be, Maricelia. Yeah, this is a special time now. You have described this as really the turning point in your life. And you say that really 
that after all those years of just kind of feeling sorry for yourself and drinking, which is what many people do that you come back injured or come back with PTSD, you know, they sit alone and they struggle and not reaching out to people or maybe they don't know who to reach out to. Right. But you met your wife and you call this your alive day when you really came back alive and started a whole new part of your life, correct? Absolutely. I had a buddy who was a Vietnam vet and he was dating this girl and the girl had three sisters and I drove by their house regularly going to visit my sister and one of the young ladies caught my eye and I hey who she is and all and put in a good word for me hook me up I think is a word not necessarily talking about my hook my prosthesis but to hook me up (laughs) and uh, he said yeah let me suggest that you go after this other girl something about her caught my friend's attention I said nope I know who I want to chase and all so like I said I drove by there frequently one day, I worked up the courage, the guts to stop by. Frequently, they were outside. Their mother had had some brain surgery and was partially paralyzed. So they'd spend a lot of time on the porch with her, taking her outside. So one day I said, eh, I'm finally going to stop. And I stopped, got off the car. At that point, I wasn't wearing my prosthesis. And I was still fairly pink all over from all the burn scars and all. And I walked up to him and I told her who I was. She says, yeah, I know who you are. She had followed the newspaper, local newspaper clippings that came out as I progressed since my return to Vietnam. We talked. To this day, I cannot remember anything that we talked. All I do remember is that we were laughing and I was leaving. I asked her, is it okay if I stop by again? She said, oh, yeah, I would like that. So I did. That started a lengthy courtship that lasted six months. And in six months, we were married. And from that point on, she knew all the games that I played, all the lies that I said. She could read right through me, right between the lines. And she had the ability to give me the support that I needed when I needed, but also to not put up with lots of my crap, I guess is the best way to put it. So little by little, she was changing me. The biggest thing that she did at the beginning of our marriage is to be there for me. I'm frequently asked, what was it like? I said, well, for me, it was it was a shocker that she had accepted me. It was so beautiful that in spite of what I looked like, what I was going through, that she took a chance on me. And little by little, she did things. One story that I like to share all the time is her sister, her younger sister, had graduated from high school. And she was getting ready to go to college to come here in San Antonio. And I told my wife, I wonder if I could go back and get the degree that I never did. And she said, I don't see why we can. She has this ability to support me to be there. Three years later, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology. And that started a totally new employment area for me, opened up avenues that I had never thought about. My dream was to be a Marine from my life or to follow my dad's footsteps as a police officer. My wife sat in on all the courses with me. We talked to the professors. When you write something with one hand, you write with the other, you hold the paper or the tablet, the binder, whatever it is. My wife sat across from me in each of the classes and would reach out and hold the paper so I could write. When I graduated from St. Mary's University here in San Antonio in 1978, On the diploma, under my name, I wrote in her name. 
he had worked harder than I had to make sure that I was able, yes, I was able to go back. But she was the one that molded me. She's the one that was there. She's the one that led me. She's the one that put up with all my headaches. You definitely given her credit for being there and everything that she did. It's well-deserved. I agree with that. It's well-deserved because it's just as difficult for someone who's trying to help get someone through something that is such a very hard thing to deal with. She helped you get far and helped to push you in the right direction. And it, what's really, I think, great for people to know and people to understand is because sometimes people go through things and when they're severe, as in your case, they might not feel like that they're ever going to be loved. You know, they're not going to feel like they can ever get married or have kids because who would want them? They sit there and they think those thoughts. You may have thought those thoughts yourself at first before you met her. And you meeting her and the life that you've led and getting married and having kids and now having grandkids, that's inspiring for others. They know that they can have all that too. So it's really so important for us to tell this story so that they can see and follow you as an example and not sit there and just think that there's no way it's ever going to happen because it has happened and you've proven it can happen. And we want people to know, you know, never give up because look at you, look at where you are and look at what you've accomplished. And it didn't just stop at her going and getting you to go to the school. Now you earned a bachelor's degree in psychology. You earned a master of education degree in guidance and counseling. And then after that, you taught high school, right? So you've done so many things. And all these things were made possible through her support. I accomplished things that I never thought I would ever even think about. I've accomplished things that I strongly feel that if I hadn't gone through what I went through, I never would have become the person that I am. I never would have earned degrees, uh, teach at my school, become the director of the Family Support Center at Laughlin. All these things that were made possible, I never knew I had it in me. And because I struggled through my life, because of all the pain and obstacles and overcoming these that's why I was able to achieve the things, obviously with the support of many, many individuals and organizations like the DAV, that without their support, if this hadn't happened, Pete, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. I would not. It's just something that, a gift that was given to me. A while ago, we talked about God. Twice when I was in the hospital, I died and I was brought back to life twice. And some friends of mine tell me how lucky I was that I was in a hospital where great doctors took care of me. And I said, yeah, that the great doctors were simply instruments that God was using. He was preparing me. What I went through, I had to go through to become the person I am today. And God guided all that. God sent me angels like my dad, like my wife, like my children like the DAV, like the VA, I could go on and on naming all these individuals and organizations. They're the ones who enable me to grow and to share our story like you share so many others through your program. These are the things that I never thought I would be. Never, never. I know it didn't really stop there either. I mean, even after high school, then you went on and again, this could be your wife pushing you to do more or be more or just helping you along to achieve your goals. But after high school, then you started counseling veterans and you've been counseling veterans for 40 plus years, right? I have. And the story that I mentioned follow about God, when I received my degree in guidance and counseling, the gentleman who placed a lot of trust in me was my professor through most of my guidance and counseling courses. His name is Dr. Donald Smith. 
he saw something in me that when I was teaching in my high school, the juvenile probation department in, in Valverde County, and which included three other counties, they were opening up the position, the brand new position of juvenile probation counselor. He talked to me and he said, I would like for you to apply for that position. I will recommend you because I think you could do great things for these kids that are going through problem areas and all. So he recommended me, I applied, and I was selected. Again, having the support of individuals like Dr. Smith. I was able to help kids and I felt so good. I thought that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Five years later, the position of Family Support Center Director at Laughlin Air Force Base opened up. I looked at it, I looked at it, I said, is this what I want to do? And it was helping military families, helping the military as they deployed, as they went off into different areas, helping the families cope without having a mom or a dad present because they're overseas serving their country. So I did that and I said, wow, this is what I want to do. And I did for the next 15 years. I was the director and we implemented new programs. We helped many, many people. Notice I said we, not I, we helped because I had a fantastic staff. So all these things were made possible again by my wife, by Dr. Smith, by the colonel who selected me for the position of director. It just kept building, getting stronger and stronger. And every move that I made, Pete, was to serve others, to serve veterans, to serve military families. So I was in heaven. I mean, I didn't have time to do anything else. I was busy always helping other people. You mentioned counseling. I, to this day, do counseling pro bono because I felt that God's gift to me was to let me live. And he had a purpose for me and he was using me. And my gift to God is to serve what he asked us to do, what he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to the world for us, for our salvation. So everything was perfect. Everything just fell into place. And again, the, my military career is what brought about all these great things in me and helping other individuals. Bobby, I know that, you know, in the beginning, whenever anything happens like this, you struggle through it, other veterans struggle through it, whether it's a physical thing or a mental thing. A common thing that they say is, why did this happen to me, God? And as you're talking about God and being there and getting you through things and bringing you back to life and everything, you know, there is a purpose. I know because of your disability, basically now you're able to share with others what you've been through to help them. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, to give them hope. So God is using you to accomplish this for helping others. And I think that it is a purpose and a mission that you are fulfilling to keep others alive and keep them from committing suicide and be in there to help them, counsel them so that they can also have a long, fulfilling life and they can get married and have kids and grandkids. And I hope that for them as well. And I'm glad that you've been there for them and doing that for so many years. The DAV, Pete, I think, is the one organization that allowed me to grow by leaps and bounds. When you mentioned that I had been selected as Disabled Veteran of the Year in 1998, the DAV saw something in me. They saw my willingness to share with others. All throughout, as we develop the relationship, service is a key word that applies not only to me as an individual, but other veterans. That certainly to the DAV. DAV gave me the opportunity to reach out to individuals. They allowed me to become their national commander 
and voice concerns to our legislature, to our president, about what needed to be done for veterans. With Desert Storm, 9-11, all these things that, that were happening, being there for veterans became a very, very vital part, not only of my life, but of our entire country. They went, they volunteered. There was a mass enrollment of volunteers because they wanted to serve, very similar to what had happened in Pearl Harbor. But the DAV gave me that opportunity, put me in a position to promote not only veterans, but disabled veterans as well. So, Bobby, let's talk about the DAV for a minute, because once you got into that, you started working with them. I know they're an organization that so many people know about, but explain what they do or explain what did you get to do with them to help others? The DAV is an organization that provides full service to all the veterans. And I need to emphasize at no cost, you don't have to enroll and become a DAV member, even though that would be certainly beneficial not only to the individual, but to the organization. From the time I arrived at Fort Sam, they came to my bedside, informed me of entitlements, of benefits that I would be able to use, things I hadn't even thought of that the VA provided, like car modifications for my vehicle, so I'd be able to drive it, entitlements that I was eligible for, house entitlements, education, housing, employment, all these are issues that the DAV deals with on a regular basis. And they deal with it from the time that you arrive to the time that you separate and then beyond. Because of the level of training, of expertise of military, corporations are eager to hire veterans. And the DAV recognized that this was a need that existed. So they implemented a program about five years ago. And they reach out, they attend so many job fairs, they connect individuals, veterans who are seeking, corporations, companies that are seeking to hire them. So for me, the DAV was fantastic. It started out involvement at the lower level. Like I said, I progressed, was elected as national commander in 2004. I started in 2004. In 2009, I was elected as national commander, later served three years in the board of directors. But this is a process that's ongoing. Our national convention last year in Florida, a new commander came in, a new fourth junior vice. It's a grooming process that DAV puts us through. So by the time that we become national commanders, we know that's going on. I've addressed a joint session of Congress and Senate on veterans issues. I got to brief two or three times President Barack Obama on issues that we felt would be beneficial. That is what the DAV does. I belong to a lot of other organizations, VFW, American Legion, Purple Heart. But my heart lies with the DAV because from the very beginning, they were there for me. They were there for veterans in return. And it's our way of giving back to those that went before us. That's really awesome. And so thanks to the DAV, you got to meet the president of the United States, huh? So that's pretty cool, too. I have pictures hanging in my office here at the house. So, You know, Bobby, there's one more thing that I really would like to talk about because I think it's a very awesome thing. There was a memorial and you were able to add a quote to it. And I would like to read that quote. And it's, I have a purpose in life and that has been to help other military families through some of what I had to go through. If what I went through will help other military families, then I'm okay with that. And I find that again, very inspiring from you. So could you tell us about that memorial? where it's at, what it's about, and how you came to be a part of it? 
When I was selected as Disabled Veteran of the Year for the National DAV in 98, there was a move to start a memorial dedicated to disabled veterans. Male, female, Army, Navy, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what war theater, uh, Korean, World War II, whatever it was. Lois Pope, a great lady, was that there was no memorial to disabled veterans. There were the different organizations to World War II and all that. So she asked, why isn't there one? That question, why isn't there one, started a movement to look into it. A committee was formed by the DAV and with Ms. Pope to start one. They started fundraising. They started researching. The process of building a monument in Washington, D.C. is a very, very tiring, cumbersome, difficult process. The committee was put together to formulate the plan to get it done, to get the funding. And the funding, none of it came from the federal government. It all came from organizations like DAV, like Turtle Heart. It came from individuals, fellow veterans, non-veterans, family members, who supported the idea of doing something for disabled veterans. In October of 2014, that memorial came to fruition. It was dedicated on a beautiful October day by President Barack Obama. One of the main portions of the memorial is a star, a five-point star with each of the branch of services with an eternal flame in the middle of the water in the reflecting pond. The part that people visit the most is the part you mentioned. There are quotes from different individuals of things like what you read, that there's certainly many, many others. Uh, I was honored that that quote that you read was selected and included. It's etched in one of the glass panels there at the memorial directly across from the mall area in front of the Capitol. You can see the Capitol Dome from the memorial. It's something that needed to be done. And next month in February, I'll go to D.C. for the DAV Midwinter Convention of the Year. And I will make it a point to visit two things. One is the Vietnam Wall to pay honor to those who gave their life, including some of my buddies from Del Rio. And the other is to go to that memorial dedicated to disabled veterans. Those are two things that I try to do on every visit that I go to D.C. Well, I'll tell you what, now that I know about that, the next time that I go up there, I am certainly going to go visit that myself. And it's really, again, awesome to know that another way that you will forever be able to inspire people is because your words are part of that. So I think that's really amazing that, you know, you did get to be a part of that. You know, Bobby, with what you've been through and, you know, you've dealt with it for so many years. And I know it's like one of those things where no matter how long it is, it's still difficult. So really, you are still dealing with it. And I know at some point you were diagnosed with PTSD and something that you have to live with. And there are those right now, there are veterans right now that are suffering and don't even have a clue of where to go, who to talk to. They could be thinking about suicide. And sometimes they don't have families. Sometimes they're alone and they don't have somebody to lean on and they don't know who to reach out to. So if you could directly tell them something right now, what would you say to them so that you could give them hope? And you're speaking from experience. So what would you tell them, Bobby? I think one of the things that stopped me from many years from getting help is that I felt asking for help from my PTSD for the thought of suicide and in my mind. I thought that if I sought help for that, it was a sign of weakness. 
it was a sign that I couldn't deal with it, that I couldn't cope with what life presented me. My message to anyone going through that, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of courage. It's a sign you want to move on. You want to do something. Like in my case, when the thought of suicide, my wife had been telling me for a long time, you need help. You need help. I said, I don't need help. Look at all the people I'm helping. He said, but you need help. Finally, when it was so much, and I always say that I don't think I would commit suicide, but the fact that I was thinking about it and looking at how I would do it scared the heck out of me. And I say that to any fellow veteran, male, female, whatever you're dealing with, it's not a sign of weakness. Get some help. There's so many agencies. The VA has a hotline. Many hospitals go into, stop by the, the emergency room. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign I need help. I can't cope with this. Get me over it. And they too will become stronger individuals. They will become leaders. They will become the stories. The next person you may be interviewing, Pete, for your program, may be someone that heard our message today. Someone that said, I do need help. It's okay to get help. Yeah, I agree 100%. And that's all we can do, Bobby, is just uh, you, me, other veterans who have been through different things like yourself, is just uh, try to pass on our knowledge that we've learned through the pain and to let others know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. God's there. They can't survive. They can't get through it. And they can become a better person and they can find their own alive day so that they can start over and begin again, just like you did. So Bobby, I really wanted to say to you, God bless you for everything that you do, for all the help that you've given to other people. And I just really thank you so much for coming on this podcast today. And I look forward to hearing more from you in the future as far as you going to conventions or whatever. Some of the positive things that you learn that can help others, we'll just keep sharing that so that we can continue the mission of saving lives. I do a presentation for the VA at churches at schools, and I call it the four S's of life. Four things that I noticed helped me put my life back together again. And some people trying to convince me to change it to the four S's of hope, which is probably a better name. And they're just these four forces. The first S, the support system. We've talked about that, being there for each other, having your family, having the VA, having the DAV, having someone be there for you. Life is much easier to deal with when you have the support of others. The second S is having a sense of humor. You've got to laugh at what's going on. Crisis are best handled, I think, when we can laugh about them, when we can make fun of ourselves. It's easier to deal with with a crisis. The third S is having a spiritual relationship, which we've talked about for some time on the program. And having a spiritual relationship leads to growth. And I'm not talking about being religious. I'm talking having a relationship with your creator, with your God, whoever you may feel. The fourth S is believing in yourself. And I always tell people when I do this presentation, you are the most important person in your life. And if you can get these four things going together, I think you'll have a chance of doing something with your life. And I thank you for the time to bring my program to your program, Pete. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to keep coming back each week for more great episodes. If you want to talk about something you learned today, if you have questions, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, go to AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening.